Hello, uh, my name is Denis Guarda and uh, welcome to the, my podcast and the Cities ABC platform that we've been displaying for some time. I'm here to talk about ideas and the biggest solutions to the problems humanity is facing, questions and challenges, and how we can think bigger and out of the box and make the world a better place and a bit one day at a time. I conduct series of interviews and profiles with global top thought leaders, influencers, experts, and people shaping and creating new narratives, solutions for our world, both with software and with the uh, ideas and projects of research, and as well, how we can shift and find new solutions for business industries. This podcast and videos are part of the platform I found at citiesabc.com. That is a new wiki for AR, intelligent smart cities, tech, digital platform, for reinventing and uniting cities, universities, organizations, and all of us citizens. Today, um, I'm here with Armando Gonzalez, that is joining us, I think, from Spain, and is the CEO and co-founder of Ravenpack. Um, Armando is leading a cutting-edge new platform, that is Ravenpack, that is a provider of big data analytics for financial institutions. So it's almost like a new Bloomberg, but it brings a lot of new tools and analytics that are quite exciting. And this as well a recognized academic and business leader that has been speaking conference around the world and has a degree in economics and international business administration from the American University in Paris. Welcome to our podcast, Armando. Thank you again for the invitation. So a pleasure to have you here. I'm very uh, excited about Pack, and that's why I decided to invite you to the interview. Um, so. I think doing what you're doing is critical, especially when you look at data. But um, before we go, especially to Raven Park and all the software we're building, can you tell us about you, your background, and uh, a bit education, and what you've been doing so far? I think it's always interesting to contextualize the history of the person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm originally from uh, California, uh, but I have a, a Latin background uh, and I, I studied uh, most of my life in the U.S. until I, I moved to France, where I, I, I did my university degree um, in, in economics, as you mentioned. And, and more importantly, I started thinking a lot about computer science and how I could mix both finance and, and economics with, with technology, which was always my passion since I was a little kid. Uh, and I, right after college, um, I started Ravenpack, uh, which is the company I, I, I currently run. And it's been um, a great, it's been a great personal project for me in that it started off as a, as a passionate um, idea around artificial intelligence and how we could use um, technologies that could help us think better, um, not necessarily replace us, but rather make us more efficient and more more capable of understanding large amounts of information. Uh, and my background in finance was a good sort of connection with that as I started meeting very interesting smart people that knew about AI and knew about developing and engineering um, solutions that would help us process uh, things like news and um, filings and public rather unstructured information that is very difficult for us humans, right, to, to do so in an efficient manner. So in, in general, these, these things have kind of come together for me as, a, as an opportunity to, to actually create a business out of it and create a company, uh, which is not always easy, but at the same time, it's, it's been a great way for me to basically enjoy every day of my life doing something that I really like, uh, working on very hard problems and 
meeting some of the smartest people in the world that have you know really interesting ideas around the use of data and how to take take advantage of information for the better of humanity. Yeah, fantastic. So, um, can you tell us a bit about the background? How especially you touch uh, AI and data, which is critical. And I think special financial services are probably the most advanced industry using especially AI and all the fintech areas. So before we go to Revan Pak, what, what do you, from your education, working financial services, how would you see the evolution of uh, fintech first and second data in, in financial services? And then of course, recently more and more the AI integration on data and trading and so forth. Yeah, I, I think, you know, finance is, is one of the most interesting spaces, um, not necessarily because it's, it's full of bankers or, or greedy people, but rather people that actually care about developing cutting edge technologies. Finance was the first to incorporate real time event processing technology. They deal with so much information that they've had to really invest in, in managing in creating analytical technology that tries to make sense of large amounts of stock information, fundamental information, um, news, uh, and any, any information that is revealed publicly about investable assets. So in, in essence, I've seen finance transform in the last 20 years, right after the dot-com uh, uh, bubble bust, if you may, the, the finance community really focused on trying to be more effective in understanding all the risk factors that influence pricing. And we saw uh, essentially a group of very sophisticated data scientists um, start hedge funds and start asset management firms uh, with this notion that if they were able to process all of these various factors in a very quick and efficient manner, then rather than being able to predict uh, markets, they would essentially be better at processing the data and get uh, an advantage over their competitors. And while it's not a crystal ball, it's a technology infrastructure that permits the ability to get um, ahead of your um, investable competitors, if you may, by being quick at ingesting all the information about executives, about products, about uh, the market about the economy that may impact um, the pricing that investors will assign to specific assets. But if you're doing able to do it in a millisecond, right, in a few milliseconds, then you can definitely be um, more efficient. And that was something that really drove my interest. Um, I also noticed that most investors in banks were very heavy on traditional data. Uh, they, they've been using market data and fundamental data for, for most, of their, uh, most of their careers. But we brought something different to the table, and that was what we now call alternative data, essentially being able to gather what really drives investors, the causes and then the actual the actions, if you may, of investors before they decide to buy or sell an asset. And the only way you can do that is by trying to probe in their emotions, if you may, the sentiment of investors. Uh, and how do we go about doing that? Well, you know, you basically look at everything investors read. What newspapers do they read? What blogs do they subscribe to? What magazines or journals do they um, normally consult in order to make an investment decision? And it was in those areas where we thought the use of technology would be very helpful in, in trying to make sense of what people would ultimately use to make their decisions. So this space has been very exciting in that all these different problems, while driven by the desire to be more effective at buying and making better decisions in terms of what you invest in 
have really driven some technological change and, and, and a technological revolution in big data and AI that not other, that I, at least I have not seen other sectors do. And while healthcare perhaps is the closest, finance has been at the cutting edge since the beginning of, of information technology. So, so picking on think, and I'm particularly interested on that being someone in the financial industry and fintech for a long time. So from your experience, um, if you look at the evolution of fintech, so we have right now almost like a big challenge is that the fintech industry is becoming more and more advanced and we have like big players and legacy systems playing together. And of course, central banks as well with a lot of challenges. So before we go to revenue back and cutting edge stuff you're doing, so can you tell us a bit about how do you see that part? And I'm interested as well as you as a CEO and an industry leader, how we cope with that? Because it's a big challenge that we're facing. We have all this advanced technology we're building, but at the same time, we have a lot of challenges in dealing with legacy systems and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think a lot of the big, the problems that we face today, especially at the high level when where decisions need to be made, is that most leaders are not data-driven. Right. Most leaders are, are emotion driven or intuition driven, uh, politically driven, but they're not accustomed to consulting the data and letting the data tell you what you should do. Uh, and this is perhaps more of a scientific approach to problem solving. But in, in decision making, in, in politics specifically, I think this is where we all struggle. And leaders don't trust data, don't trust the scientific process uh, and don't trust the, the data driven process. I think that's one of the fundamental changes that will take perhaps a long time and it has nothing to do with technology. It has to do with us humans and how we've evolved uh, and, and the state that we're in. The second thing I would say is in general, while technology is evolving very, very quickly, there are still uh, many issues around data collection, right? And it's, there's definitely been a significant boost in, in compute and storage and cloud services that makes you know, things a lot easier and faster, but being able to get the right data is still very much in the, at the heart of every AI problem across all industries. And we believe that having good data, having good collection processes, these are the kinds of things that really create the correct foundation for any kind of modeling. If we take a look at what's happening you know, currently with, with COVID-19, the biggest problem that we have today is still very much the collection of, of data around confirmed cases, around recoveries, around real death rates. Uh, and then secondly, being able to test people, right? And that's, again, part of the data collection process, being able to properly diagnose and test people around the world in order to truly understand what the problem is. But we, I think, all agree that we're working with a complete data in this particular problem. And the decisions that we're making in general are based on flawed information, right? And ultimately we revert back to these emotional approaches, this intuitive approach, perhaps driven more by our own biases than what you know is really good for society or, or what's really good for mankind in general. Yeah, I want to touch that because that's uh, as, as someone that has been working in investment banking and, and uh, as well with a lot of uh, digital and fintech big platforms and some unicorns, one of the things I find out is that we have right now, and you touch a very important point, is the, the importance of looking at data from a scientific perspective and not from a biased perspective. Mm -hmm. Of course, we are humans and unfortunately we have this challenge. So right. one question I have as well on the thought leadership part and as well as your work as a CEO, but as well as an industry leader. So 
When you look at financial markets, we have right now a massive challenge, is that we have most of the financial data being used for capital markets. It's digital, and, uh, and most of the, the big banks and investment banks and hedge funds are using quantum, quantum computing for, for these things and a lot of other things. But then when you look at central banks that are emitting money in crazy ways, we have not um, a logic. And as the machines become more and more important to look at numbers, one of the questions I have is, how can we cope with the irrationality of the, the politics and as well, especially the financial, some of the countries emitting money in quantities that is crazy. And then the reality of the machine and the logic that we have almost in the scientific way. So don't you think we're going to have potentially a massive black swan on the top of everything we have right now, specifically just looking at data, because I'm talking about financial data and money data. So how do you see that from a scientific uh, uh, financial data-driven uh, expert, but as well building a company in that area? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, those are great questions and, and, and very complicated answers, right? But I think that the first thing, you know, how do we deal with our own biases? I mean, this is an evolutionary problem, right? It's not something that we're going to solve, maybe, you know, you and I on this interview or, you know, politicians or central bankers sitting across each other is trying to make a, a decision for a better world. This is taking us, um, it's probably taking us, you know, hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years to get to where we are today. And until we, again, embrace um, data and embrace information, embrace the scientific process as a society for making decisions, we won't see these biases go away in any shape or, or form. So I think that's a more general philosophical problem and an evolutionary problem. Um, but what can we do today in terms of what's you know, clearly evident uh, and available for us? I do believe that um, when it comes to um, economics, I think sentiment has become an extremely important factor in any kind of investment decision or any kind of uh, money allocation um, strategy. Sentiment is essentially the way we feel, the way we you know, think to some extent, but act um, in sometimes irrational ways. And we tend to think of positive and negative sentiment as, a, as an easy way of quantifying what investors and what society is thinking or feeling in general. Uh, and these things can be probed, um, perhaps unfortunately, you know, by un analyzing news and analyzing blogs and analyzing basically everything that we see. And it's proving to be become a world that is being manipulated to some extent, right? By, by the media and by the, the information outlets that are out there. So we can predict a lot of our behaviors. We can predict the sentiment, how we're going to feel by actually analyzing what we're going to read and what we're going to see, right? And it has nothing necessarily to do with our inner workings of our brains, but it has to do with the information exposure that we get and our location and our tendencies and our biases to some extent. But some of these biases are easy to, to model. And now you, you simply look at the information you feed these individuals and you can ultimately understand whether this either propenses their ability to uh, continue thinking the certain the way they have or whether there's certain types of information that they will be exposed to that might change their views on certain areas. And this has everything to do with our tendencies towards uh, electoral elections, for example, or, or, or candidates, or it has to do with the decisions to pump more money into the economy or um, be more concerned about health and, and individuals over economic sort of fear or economic issues. 
all, all again, these are, these are things that we will continue to see um, change and they continue to be big factors in, in the type of information that we read. And I think it's, it's there where we will find answers and less so in trying to understand the biases or the emotions, the inner workings of each and every one of us. Yeah, that's a critical element for the financial industry. So, so um, one last question in the top level macro question. So how do you see um, capital markets and as well uh, the financial industry from a trends perspective and from your main areas of uh, work from a technology standpoint, but as well from an industry standpoint? I mean, I, again, I, I do think that the, the market is still very much um, being driven by government decisions today, right? It does not, it does not appear to be a, a freely working market anymore, right? There's a significant influence by central banks across the world in trying to um, protect the, the economy as, as, it, as it used to be even three, five, three to five months ago. Uh, so there's a lot of government intervention, which makes the game very difficult to play. Uh, there's also a lot of decisions being made um, at, at, the, at the government level that, again, influence um, what investors do. And, and, and more importantly, that the, the types of decisions that are being made at the macro level are really driving even the, some of the more, more risky assets, right? You look at stock markets today, and despite the amount of negative news and despite the expected significant economic challenges that retailers will face or the um, travel industry among other industries hardly hit by the coronavirus uh, pandemic uh, markets are still fairly dislocated from from the fundamentals so this this is again purely driven by sentiment purely purely driven by information and by by what again governments and central bankers are going to do to try to save us from from economic collapse so um, one of the things you're working is, of course, a lot of things related with uh, predicting capital markets in relationship with AI. Um, so you touched some of these things, but for instance, how do you see AI going forward in terms of the way um, the capital markets are saying, and as well, I'm going probably to a philosophical question, but I want to touch that before we go to the product, is the challenge is that AI normally is built around humans that program machines to look at data, specifically machine learning and so forth. But like you said, we have governments trying to defend themselves. We have geopolitics. We have a lot of complexity. So like you said, I think probably we're going to be more dependent of sentiment analysis for capital markets than anything else. And probably AI will be all look at that. But in general, AI is much bigger and much broader than that. So what other things do you suggest from the AI applications you've been using so far? And, and as well, some top level things that you consider on these areas. Sure. I mean, uh, as you know, from my, my background and, and my career so far, we've really focused on natural language processing, what is known as NLP, which is a, a branch of artificial intelligence. And that has and deals with anything that has to do with language, right? Understanding whether it's English or Russian or French, um, understanding the nuances of language and being able to model and represent knowledge in the way humans um, communicate. Now that to me seems the essential sort of problem that we need to solve and trying to understand you know, what we're saying um, and create structure around that information so that other technologies within AI like machine learning, for example, um, can take advantage of proper data collection and proper structure to try to 
mimic the way we ration or the way we um, decide and, and ultimately um, make decisions, right? And that's where the scale, um, the scalability comes into play. That's where compute um, and cloud systems are, are very powerful in that we can do things that one human um, would probably do in a day or a month um, would probably take just a few milliseconds for a computer in a, in a cloud environment that both understands language and is able to learn based on new and incoming information. So these, these two areas for me seem the more exciting parts of, of artificial intelligence. Of course, we're doing a lot of work in, in vision recognition or pattern recognition, being able to assign and tag um, uh, things that are in images or videos as either you know, specific acts, whether it's an act of violence or a, a crime in the making or being able to identify specific behaviors in, in humans. Um, that's also very interesting and in, in being able to represent those in a structured way that computers can then analyze and try to make sense of, of patterns or connections. So all these, all these things combined, I think, are, are extremely exciting. And it's not just for finance, right? This is where healthcare is, is coming um, and becoming very important. Uh, but this also affects every, practically every other industry, right, where knowledge workers are essential. Right? So now coming back to um, how you put that in practice with Ravenpack. So Ravenpack is a company uh, that has, um, well, as, uh, I think we have around 150 employees around the world, but especially in Spain, Marbella. So tell us a bit how do you create Ravenpack and uh, what is Ravenpack for someone that never heard about it? Yeah, absolutely. So Ravenpack is is a is an international company that focuses on on big data analytics, and as you mentioned earlier, uh, specifically for financial markets. We are a group of about 130 people, um, 30 something nationalities. We speak more than 35 languages uh, and are based mostly out of Spain, uh, but we also have our business headquarters in New York. Um, again, two two areas that got you know heavily hit by the coronavirus. Uh, but at the same time, uh, a very resilient team that has been quite successful at adapting um, to the current situation where we have uh, practically everyone uh, remote working today uh, and have been doing so since the beginning of the crisis. Um, so this is an example of a company that is based off of different nationalities and different backgrounds, which I think is what makes us unique. Uh, and we all have a passion for engineering and, and AI specifically. Uh, and we uh, really like developing um, solutions to hard problems. Finance is, as we mentioned earlier, and, and the economy in general has huge problems to solve and data and, and machine learning and other AI capabilities are ideal tools for this, these types of problems. We've been in business for over 17 years. Now I, start, I started the company, co-founded the company back in 2003 um, and have really worked on these types of problems ever since becoming eventually a commercial um, success in 2008, 2009, after we created our first product. But originally we were very much an R&D type of operation, um, but ultimately you know, figured that we needed to create products that helped us keep um, financing some of the work that we were doing. And so we did, uh, and we've been successful at uh, generating uh, subscription revenue. We've been growing double digits every year. Uh, and we've also had some great luck in attracting venture capital investment uh, as well. We have two uh, VCs on board. Our first investor was Draper Esprit, one of the largest tech investors in the world. 
and our second and latest investor is GP Bullhound. Uh, again, another very innovative tech investor in, in Europe um, that, that the focus have, is focused heavily on fintech. So with the backing of these two new investors, uh, we've been able to finance some very exciting operations and, and projects across um, AI. And even today, you know, we're really focused on solving problems that go beyond finance. And uh, again, the example of our coronavirus news monitor was our, our first attempt to create a tool that was more um, applicable to other sectors and, and had a much more retail focused. And this is part of our, our projects to, to actually create new tools um, I'll give you a, a quick um, sneak peek into something that we're working on. The, the company is actually trying to get um, for, um, for the U.S. presidential election uh, a similar monitor um, that is able to track the news and the sentiments surrounding the two candidates in the U.S. So that's something that's coming up soon. Uh, but these are the kinds of things that we're really focused on today, trying to create tools that, again, are freely available to demonstrate what we do as a company. Uh, but also have a, a social component to it. And hopefully our information and our analysis can help anyone, someone interested in understanding how the information overload is affecting us. So as a company going for 17 years, which is quite impressive, but you're quite young, so you start very young. So um, that is not conventional startup. So you've been building something very solid and then taking it and scaling it. Can you tell about that? Because I think it's particularly interesting especially to demystify a lot of things about uh, startups that do everything in one year and suddenly become unicorns. And I yeah. think you guys are becoming almost, uh, in terms of the, the work, uh, a new Bloomberg, which is quite impressive. So just a bit of that history of 17 years, which is, uh, I respect a lot entrepreneurs and people that achieve what you achieved. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And we are definitely the opposite of a traditional startup, right? Um, and while we, perhaps all entrepreneurs, want to have these huge hit hits or, or home runs, right, that happen in a couple of years, the types of problems that we decided to solve were very hard, right? There were no textbooks, there were no um, user guides or manuals that we could follow. We were pr practically inventing the way, our way into, uh, into a space that had already been um, working on AI for 50 years, right? Even in the late 50s, there was work being done on AI, and yet nobody had really cracked the, the problems of natural language processing or machine learning. So these, these problems were very evident and very hard, and they just took a long time. We were just very stubborn, um, perhaps resilient, and, and really kept at it for many years until we found uh, a good use case and a real problem we could solve. They could pay the bills, keep the lights on, and, and keep us working. So that, that is why, again, we weren't very focused on trying to generate immediate money and trying to satisfy you know, big venture capital investors that obviously put a lot of pressure on you. Um, our, our, our VC investment came two, three years ago. So this is, again, the complete opposite of, of what the, the typical startup would do. We decided to build a business, demonstrate we could generate revenue, became profitable, and then raise money. Oh, that's, that's very impressive. And I, I like because it's, it shows a very solid looking forward and I think systemic persistence in terms of business. So in terms of the, the product, and, and I think uh, I would like to touch a bit that, so as a global finance, uh, you, you have a, uh, there's a quote of yours that mentioned global finance and reach a critical inflection point as asset owners and money managers embrace tools like machine learning and big data analysis to navigate complex and turbulent markets. So we touch a bit about this, but I want to keep on this quote of yours. Um, so from a product perspective and from a subscription perspective of Revenpack, 
So most of the, if you look at the financial industry, we have like the retail industry, but then investment capital markets that is increasingly dependent of tools like yours. And of course, all of them are using Bloomberg terminals. So what would be the difference between the Bloomberg terminal and your platform for the ones that uh, are not so familiar as well? Yeah, I think that the primary difference between us and Bloomberg would be um, our focus on completely alternative um, data sources, right? This is, Bloomberg is very much um, a traditional fundamental market data driven uh, platform and they're essential for a lot of firms that obviously need that type of information for, for trading and investing. We, on the other hand, um, focus on the causes of why markets move. And our philosophy is trying to identify the sources, the, what we call the root source, the root cause of, of investment decisions. And in doing so, we're able to gather insights um, that have an information advantage over, over the more traditional sources. By the time that someone buys or sells a stock and that gets registered at, at, as market data, we think it's too late, right? The decision's been made. So we focus on what are the factors, what are, what are investors reading, analyzing, digesting, sharing before they decide to buy something? What are investors exposed to? What are they afraid of? What are their, their, their biggest fears that cause them to sell certain securities in different countries and, and, and focus on that type of information? And the secret sauce, if you may, is really taking all this unstructured um, data and turning it into basic metrics, right? Turning it into indices, turn it in, into simple indicators that have a, a, a very common sense approach to putting that the data together and behave very much like the traditional stock tickers or the traditional KPIs or fundamental factors. Uh, so it brings all this alternative, all these alternative views uh, back into the, the roots of everything and then creates a, a very simplistic, very familiar way of looking at data similar to what Bloomberg does, except we're the alternative. No, very interesting. And I think this is going to be increasingly more important, not just for data from financial markets, but as well for cities, for countries and a lot of things. Because if a country doesn't have this data, and of, of course, we've seen with COVID-19, all the challenges. So in terms of the product, and I want to go a bit more on that, uh, there's a study actually in the uh, uh, book, uh, the end book of news analytics and finance that mentions your platform and talks as well how you've been established a premier uh, firm in sentiment analysis and natural language processing. So can you just explain a bit the way uh, you pick the data and the way you look at building the sentiment? Because it's very important, and you mentioned the, senti yep. the scientific part of that. Because uh, one thing is that at the moment we have a complexity of people not taking data seriously or not even getting the basic scientific, which is a big problem for people like us that are trying to do things in the right way. So if you could highlight that, that's quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So, so let's start from the beginning. Um, the first thing that we do is basically curate a list of sources to track. Um, we have access to about a million different sites, uh, a million different publishers. There's everything from the traditional news wires like Dow Jones or um, uh, digital papers like the Wall Street Journal or uh, PR Newswire, Business Wire, you know, any, any kind of uh, channel that is used by companies, by people, by governments to disseminate information as well as websites or blogs. And all these sources are essentially being curated by our team. And we, we pick the most representative uh, sources across the world. That means that these are sources that have you know, a significant amount of subscribers um, that have been around for some time that are not considered fake 
news or fake information that have a certain reputation that follow certain writing style guidelines or journalistic styles. Um, so it essentially trying to create a, a decent foundation of, of information, but at the same time, a very diverse one. So we literally track, I think, 22,000 different sources, literally millions of articles every day. And these get ingested by um, these collectors that bring all that textual information into an environment that um, is able to classify and tag everything that is being said about companies, people, places, governments, politicians, uh, you name it. So we've maintained this massive database uh, of things that we want to track in the news. And then we use those sources to identify what's being said about them, whether it's good or bad, whether it's about inflation or deflation, whether it's about recession or COVID, whether it's about um, jobless claims or unemployment rising. All these factors and all what we call topics or events are basically detected by the machine that we've built. Um, and they create statistics around what's being said about them. And what's powerful about this system is that, uh, to give you some context, if you, know, you were to blink your eyes now, that takes about 350 milliseconds, just blinking once. So we're able to collect, tag, analyze, and disseminate all of this analysis to a customer in less than 200 milliseconds. So faster than we can blink our eyes, this machine has read everything, analyzed everything and send it to someone that can make a decision. And that's where the real advantage comes into play. It's the speed and it's the accuracy and the scalability of this type of technology in trying to make sense of all this information where neither you or I or anybody in this planet as a human being would be able to even think about reading or think about trying to interpret. And this is where AI brings a real um, additional value add to um, to human decision making. Well, that's quite impressive, and I think uh, um, it's so. At the moment, who, who can your product is open mostly to financial service, but is open to governments to other things. So, how do you right now take this to market? Well, you've been taking this to market. Yeah, we we have really for now. We've really focused on on banks. So this, these are like the top top investment banks in the world have been using our data for maybe more than 10 years now. Uh, but we've also focused on large asset managers, hedge funds. Uh, there are firms that do like trade surveillance and compliance within financial services. Uh, we're also being used by central banks uh, for research purposes, for policy advisory as well. Um, and anything that has to do with finance and the economy is, is our thing. That, that's what we're good at. Um, the next phase for Ravenpack is extending that and looking to um, specifically grow our um, data capabilities around um, ESG, for example, sort of environmental, um, societal and governance issues that not just affect finance, but affect corporations across the world and, and across different industries. We're also doing a lot of work around risk management and geopolitical risk. Uh, and these are, uh, again, utilities and tools that can be very helpful for for any kind of industry looking to understand the environment, um, both macroeconomic and geopolitical and incorporating that type of information into every decision that is made from the CEO down to a line manager. So one of the areas that I see that you particularly interested in, and I think you just touched a bit on that is ESG investment, which is critical because people want to invest in companies that don't have issues 
and as well big funds and big banks and big organizations or even governments that want to have like uh, negative uh, portfolio companies in their platform. So can you tell us a bit about ESG uh, investment uh, and uh, how you ta tackle this um, through, through the platform and as well through your actions uh, as a business? Yeah, so through the platform, uh, because we have access to so much uh, public information um, and both companies are required to disclose certain information, but there's very limited uh, amounts of that um, uh, let's call it um, actively being disclosed or proactively be, uh, disclosed information. And that creates an opportunity for us to turn the engine towards all the other information sources that may give us clues as to whether companies are engaging in certain activities or um, buying from vendors that violate certain rules, whether it's child labor or whether they're um, contaminating or polluting the environment in ways that are unacceptable. But these types of events and these types of information clues can only be um, identified through the use of big data. Right? There's, it is very rare that companies will voluntarily disclose some of this information. And we can probably expect that most companies will try to hide this type of information as much as possible. And that's where uh, big data and AI are very helpful in trying to identify you know, other sources uh, out there that give us clues as to whether companies comply with environmental standards, whether um, companies are actively engaged in the community and it's not just a PR stunt or the PR or marketing department promoting the company as such, whether the governance of a company is actually working properly, not just what we see from financial statements, but by looking at either comments from customers or partners or reading reviews or looking at even satellite data that tells us more about the types of movements or decisions that you know, the, the governance or, or the executive team of a company is making. Um, and uh, while we digest all this information, we're much better equipped to score these companies from a, from a less subjective perspective without having to purely trust or rely on what the company discloses but using all of the information surrounding companies um, to, to better score entities. And it's, that's where the challenge today exists, right? That most of the ESG data out there is very inconsistent, is bias prone, is, has holes. Uh, methodologies are, again, unaccepted by most investors. And Brave Impact is trying to change that by bringing big data as the de facto approach to scoring companies for ESG factors. So that is a critical element that touches all our society. And of course, we've been seeing from elections to a lot of things. And of course, financial markets being, um, well, if you look at Brexit and a lot of things and Cambridge Analytica, this is a big, big uh, central fight and as well challenges. So how do you cope? And I know that you build a tool for fake news. So I, would, I wanna touch that in specifically. How do you, how can you assure the security of this data and avoid um, these elements of uh, fake news that affects capital markets, manipulation by politicians or by, um, uh, well, a lot of uh, social media uh, spammers and things like that. So how do you look at these areas in particular? Because this is a very, I think it's something that it touches everyone, but specifically decision makers and increasing everyone in the world. Right. Uh, I mean, at the moment, there is no, there is no systematic way of dealing with with fake news, right? It still requires uh, very much a set of standards 
uh, at Ravenpack, for example, we have a series of factors or standards that are set to um, include a source as part of our analytics. Uh, and I think I'm, I touched upon some of these factors. One of it is the reputation of the, of the source. That's determined by number of followers, um, the number of years that it's been in business, um, monthly visits. We also look at comments and general sentiment analysis around the source. Uh, we look at the, the number of, of historical archives and the frequency of publication. Uh, we look at backlinks and a number of other things. So we try to assess every source that ultimately makes its way into our, our core base. I mentioned we have millions, but only more, you know, only roughly 22,000 of, of these plus 1 million sources actually make it into our platform. So that gives you a sense of how much gets filtered out, right? And um, that, that's one of the, the main criteria, at least that we take um, to try to understand this. But again, this was a set of standards that we set that we believe are logical, right? And there's a lot of sort of human curation in identifying the sources. But once you identify a source, you, ne you need to trust the source, right? And uh, if there is any fight, fake information or misinformation inside those sources, it becomes a lot harder to detect, right? Uh, and that's where we create uh, a series of, of indices and statistics that tell us if others start raising flags around a specific source. If, if some um, sources start flagging a specific journalist or flagging a specific topic, as fake news, then that's another factor that helps us understand that. And this is what led us to the creation of the fake index um, um, indicator, if you may, for coronavirus um, news monitoring. And this is essentially relying on the creation that we've done, but also looking at whether people are calling out others as uh, delivering propaganda or misinformation or um, voluntarily um, trying to mislead people through fake information. And this, is, this index has been very interesting, specifically during COVID-19 and during this pandemic, as it's been fluctuating um, you know, over the last few months. And I think at the moment, it's probably at one of its lowest levels. So it's, it's interesting to see how it's peaked and it seems to be stabilizing at the moment, perhaps because the general um, interest in, or the, the call it the information congestion or overload that we're facing around coronavirus is so high that um, people are starting to fade and think about other things. So I think we'll let's go from the theory to the practice. Uh, if you could share um, a bit of the COVID-19 dashboard that is fantastic and I, I use it myself and as well a bit of a, an overview about the product and what we've been doing. I think it's interesting for our audience top level of course but I think the, the COVID-19 actually is open to public uh, you are offering in your database in your website is as well on cities ABC so if you could highlight that that would be really interesting for everyone looking at this yeah absolutely um, what I'll do now is I'll, I'll share my screen um, so you yeah. can see so you can see the monitor um, so it should be up let me know if you can yes. you can see it yeah okay wonderful um, so this is coronavirus.ravenpack.com. Uh, this is our proprietary coronavirus news monitor. As I mentioned, it's powered by uh, more than 20,000 sources of information. There are literally hundreds of thousands of news stories that um, are used to, to power each and every one of these widgets. What's interesting is that it, first of all, starts off by showing you cases. Right? These are worldwide cases up to date. There's now over 5 million cases. 
over 2.3 million recovered. We're almost uh, about to hit 350,000 deaths worldwide. We can sort of look at this in more detail and see you know, kind of how the curve's been evolving over the last month or last three months. Uh, and we can also you know, compare it to specific um, countries like let's say the United States, this is sort of total cases in the US versus um, the world. And we can see it in logarithmic scale to see how the, the curve is flattening. Um, so you can still compare that. You can also read news stories um, across the world around different cases. Notice how each and every one of these um, headlines is about cases. And that's something that this thing is quite neat at, at picking up. Um, but you can also dive into things like our panic index. This is what we have on the left here. These are the last two days. So you can see the, the tendency on panic right now. It's down a little bit. If we open it up, we can see how panic over, this is the beginning of the year. You can see how it peaked around March, right? March 30th, March 31st. That was like the top of, of panic, right? This is where every country is going into major confinement, lockdowns, quarantines all over the world. Um, this is where I think even I personally felt, you know, that things were, were in bad shape. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people did as well. But over time, we've started to see panic drop, right? And if we look at the, the levels that we are today, the, the panic index is something that has value similar to what we were sometime in the beginning of March, right? So this is, again, no, no surprise. But what's very valuable about this tool is that you can compare panic between sort of our global standard and you can compare it with, let's say, the United States, for instance, right? And you can see how it's evolving in the U.S., where panic levels were, were certainly higher in the U.S. during these periods. And even at the moment, panic is still a little higher than the, the norm. If we compare it against Spain, my home country at the moment, um, we can see that Spain had very high levels, right, compared to sort of the, the global norm, um, especially around March. But even today, you know, we, we're living in, in a country that has a lot of rules of confinement, a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of confusion around the, the politics in, in the country and, and even changing or transitioning between phases of, 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 uh, of, of the coronavirus pandemic management. So this, again, perhaps is one of the major reasons why panic is so high, even still in, the, in Spain, right? Um, and then we, we talked about media hype a little bit. This is our indicator that tells you how many, like what percentage of the total news is about the coronavirus. So about 50% um, of all news is still about the, the virus, but it's been going down over time. You look at the last three months, for instance, and you can see there's a significant drop. Uh, we also have our fake news index. And this is what we yeah. spoke about earlier. You can see how fake news um, was being uh, was rising over time, and it peaked at around yeah 22nd of March. So this was a an important moment. We've had a few other peaks, um, especially in April. But levels today of fake news are also similar to where we were in the beginning of of some of these lockdowns, right? So so on the on the fake news, I would like to ask uh, one or two questions. So. Um, for, for someone that will be listening to our uh, video podcast and, and here. So this is a very big thing right now. So can you just explain a bit more? So at the moment, uh, so the peak was 2% of uh, fake news index. So in terms of very simplicity, this means that 2% of the world news were fake. Well, how do you explain just, just, I would like to go a bit more scientific here, if you wouldn't mind. 
Yeah. So, so what the what the fake news index measures is is the level of of media chatter around um, fake news or misinformation. That means that two percent of the world's news is talking about um, information being false. Right. So people are making claims and identifying sources as being fake, or identifying sources um, that are spreading misinformation or disinformation, um, uh, as well as propaganda. And this, this level is quite high in that if you think about um, normally when, you know, even before the, the COVID uh, pandemic uh, became, you know, made headlines, if you may, you could see that these levels, you know, would be below 1%, right? Um, and even when China announced the, the first cases and actually um, called it as, as a coronavirus and not just pneumonia, um, the index was, was quite low. So when, when you see this like sort of exponential rise in, in this index and more and more people are, are talking about fake news and are talking about misinformation, then we believe that's what influences sentiment, right? If people believe that information is fake, then it'll be treated as fake. Um, and it's, that's what this index tries to measure, you know, how much emphasis, how much concern, what percentage of the news is, being, um, is talking about misinformation. Yeah, that's very interesting. And it's actually quite interesting that probably I would suggest even bigger than, than what the, the index shows, but it's interesting to look at data. Because for instance, if you look at the, within Facebook and the European Union recently, even in the news there is asking Facebook to tackle fake news because you're not picking social media. This is just informational news. Because if you go to fake yes. social media, it's much bigger now. Yeah, much bigger. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, I and mean, you know, here's an example. I mean, we, we just contrasting countries, right? This is the, the, the blue is essentially China fake news. And you can see, you know, China, news on China reached almost 8%, right, at some point, yeah. right? Uh, so a lot of misinformation around China when you compare it to other countries um, like Russia, for instance, right? Um, you can also see, you know, similar sort of activity, right? Again, Russia much higher than the norm. Yeah. A country like Spain um, or let's say Germany, you know, maybe um, would probably have you know, some peaks here and there, right? Um, yeah. So there's, there's a lot of fake news out there. There's a lot of misinformation. It's very difficult to identify unless uh, journalists, you know, investigative journalists or governments, you know, point to it and, uh, and tell us, right, that someone's done the research and identified this as, as being a fake source. We do our part by curating the sources that go into our analytics. Um, but at the same time, it's very easy, especially in social media, um, to get bots to get you know, programs that act, behave like people and start spreading and commenting information systematically to influence public perception. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I think that's why these tools like these are fantastic. And actually for free, which is fantastic that you are offering this to anyone in the world. Okay, well, yeah. I think that this shows all the capacities and I think uh, to be honest, is one of the best tools I've been finding out and, not being very, very straightforward because it's, it's amazing what you put here all together. And as well, the related topics is particularly interesting, the topics if you want to just show as a product part, yeah. yeah this yeah, is very important as well. Absolutely, so, so what's interesting about related topics is you can basically look at what are the, what are the main topics that are being talked about um, in the context of the coronavirus. So this is the section that we see over here on the right. So this means that 20% uh, of the world's news 
um, it's talking about social distancing, right? So this is 20% of all news that, that is mentioning the coronavirus or talking about COVID-19. The second um, biggest topic is fear, right? 12% of all news is about fear, um, similar to confirmed cases and staying at home, right? Uh, and you can also look at it from a percentage change. You know, how is that changing today? So today's trending topic, if you may, is state of emergencies, right? This is probably lockdowns either being extended or, or, being, or, or countries starting to move into some, you know, new phase of a state of emergency. Fines is a big thing, and you can actually drill down into fines and, and basically see, um, is there um, a specific like story like U.S. considering imposing sanctions on China? Again, this is related to, to the fines, um, to, to our fines topic. Um, but this could also be about people um, being fined for um, violating certain confinement rules, right? Um, but you can see most of the most of the world's um, information um, about fines has been growing over the last three months. Um, what's also trending today is crude oil. These are probably prices, and we can drill down into that. We can see that um, prices are pretty steady, right? Um, we can also drill into the second wave. This has been a topic that has been an increased interest. You can see that over the last three to four months, this concern about a second wave has been rising across the world. If we look at this in the context of the United States, for instance, and we can just pick one of the uh, pick one of the topics that, that we want. Um, so we'll do second wave in the U.S. versus second wave in in um, in the world as a as a comparison, right? And we can see that the U.S. is even today is actually bigger. Right, four point five percent of all news is about a second wave versus three and a half, which is the world norm at the moment. So a little more more concerning there. We can dig deeper in there, and you can see you know, sort of similar tendencies, but still higher nonetheless. So that's another big big interest. Um, and, you know, other things like um, Cold War or guns and ammo, these things seem to be sort of trending in, in the world. People protesting, I think, is going to be a bigger one. But what's neat about related topics is that it really quantifies the entire news spectrum, right, in, in terms of what's happening everywhere in the world. And you can then, you know, drill down to specific countries. So if you're interested in Brazil, you can also see what's trending in Brazil. So we have a very similar sort of structure, except travel ban is number three now. And that's probably as a consequence of the U.S. imposing a, a travel yeah. ban on, on Brazil, right? So you can see the logical representation of our newsreader over here, which very much aligns with what's happening in, in our statistical um, view, right? And that's part of the idea here to make sure that it still remains, there's some common sense, right, around the stats and also what people, and what the machine is basically read to determine that something is spiking. Um, and, uh, and then again, Brazil has, you know, some interesting characteristics too, and in that the panic index um, is still, you know, pretty high. It's around 6% of the world's news, still pretty high. Um, and uh, it's also worth mentioning that we have this uh, thing called media exposure to the coronavirus. And you can actually see every country, but you can also see politicians, right? You can see the sentiment yeah. uh, of politicians. You can see treatments specifically like um, hydrochloroquine, this is the, the drug that uh, President Trump has been taking, uh, and that's probably taking 70% of all um, news about treatments is about this particular drug as a consequence of, of his exposure, right? 
probably not the most effective one, but yet the one that gets the most media exposure and hence people read about it, people become influenced, and that's the biggest fear, right, around its, its impact. Um, and you can also see, you know, sort of other, other treatments and drugs, vaccines that are trending today. So we have a large database of them here. Um, but we're also tracking, if you go to the global uh, view, we're also tracking companies. You can look at airline stocks, right, and then see which ones are trending. SpiceJet today has the most of the news. Um, we, food and beverages, you can see Coca-Cola is at the top of, of its exposure. So these are all companies that are somehow exposed to coronavirus. These days, pretty much everything is, is getting exposure, but these are the ones that have the most, right? And that's kind of neat, especially from an investment perspective to see, you know, which are the, the companies that should be more concerned about given their exposure to something as deadly as coronavirus. And there you go. Are you integrating this with any trading platform uh, within your uh, terminal or, um, or this is agnostic, you can integrate it with any platform around the world? Yeah, so everything, everything that you see here, as you correctly pointed out, is free for, for non-commercial use, right? Anybody can look at this and, and use it for research or to disseminate it for any kind of application. If it's for commercial use and we sell this data uh, through the API, right? And, and most of our banks and banking clients and financial clients are and have been consuming this information directly from the API. So they subscribe to these uh, feeds. They create their own custom indicators uh, for the companies and the portfolio um, constituents that they care about. And then these factor in as another input into their typically quantitative investment frameworks, right? Oh, fantastic. Well, it's a great product. Uh, thank you so much for the demonstration. I think we, we understand as well the, the power of the work you've been doing. And I think this is a great example because you, you touch all the different areas. And I think everyone in the world, especially our politicians, should be looking at this. Probably they should be doing better decisions. <laughs> but I will yeah. leave that for them to learn. Okay, so I, I think we're wrapping up the interview. I don't know if there's anything uh, you want to highlight more in terms of uh, Revenpack Pack and about the different products you have. Um, I think we're going to put all this information in the interview and, uh, and as well, we are as well partnering with you guys, but I think it's interesting to look at the possibilities because this is enormous, especially not just like you mentioned financial markets, but uh, for healthcare, even for, for looking at uh, data and information for media and as well um, for activities in decision making and leadership. Yeah, and no, I just, again, want to highlight that data matters, right? Information matters. Um, leaders, uh, politicians, anybody with the power to make a decision that affects um, our lives as a society, as a community, should be focusing on the data, and they should look for the best information possible uh, and not be afraid of letting science help you uh, decide uh, on our behalf. Um, as opposed to your own biases or your own political affiliations or your own political interests. I think that's where we need to change as a society. And that's what Raven Pack is really trying to do in our, in our humble position, try to provide the best information possible. Well, thank you so much. It's been a fantastic and Armando uh, is really congratulations for the excellent work. And I hope another 17 years of growth and a lot of success. Thank Appreciate you so much. That. Thank you very much.